to the book of John, John chapter 1, as uh, we continue in our study. For those of you that are visiting, we've been, uh, since the first of the year, uh, started to study the book of John, and uh, we're almost to the end of February here, and we've got, we're getting to the end of the first chapter, so uh, uh, trust uh, these uh Lessons and these uh, messages have been an encouragement and help to us as we study this foundational book of God's Word, the Gospel according to John. And this morning we want to talk about bringing others to Christ. Bringing others to Christ. Now there's uh, something going on in our uh, society or our country and around the world today, and it's called uh, the Emerging Church. And the emerging church calls upon Christians to build intimate relationships with the unsaved, but not necessarily with the objective of leading them to Christ. Uh, people are talking about, yeah, we need to get to, to know people and we need to uh, uh, get them to understand uh, us a little bit, but uh, we don't want to press them about this issue of salvation. There was a, a Mars Hills church. Mars Hills church is still in, uh, in existence in Seattle. Uh, they operated a secular rock club called Paradox, which was uh, hosting hundreds of rock concerts. And their former pastor, uh, Mark Driscoll, said the focus of his opera- uh, operation is simply to show hospitality. I think that's good. Hospitality is good. But that's all the reason they had these, just for hospitality. He said, so we welcomed kids into a safe place where we could build relationships of grace on Jesus' behalf rather than preaching at the kids or doing goofy things like handing out tracts. Uh, I don't think uh, handing out tracts is a goofy thing. I think it's a good thing, and we need to continue to do it. Uh, In his book entitled, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, Dan Kimball begins by relating a talk uh, he gave to a group of pastors. He told them that he spends a considerable part of his time as pastor developing relationships with unbelievers. He said he gets invited to rock and roll drinking clubs to hang out and see bands and how this is also a way to hang out with and build trust and credibility with those I'm befriending. He said, I shared how incredibly refreshing it was to be friends with people outside church circles. And when one of the pastors asked him if he won them to Christ, he replied, no, I'm just trying to be their friend and get to know them. Another pastor commented that the emerging generation of people are pagans and they just need to hear solid preaching, which will cause them to repent of their their ways. But uh, Dan Kimball strongly disagreed. Kimball says the term missional means that we don't bring Jesus to people, but that we realize Jesus is active in culture and we join him in what he's doing. And we serve our communities and we build relationships with people in them rather than seeing them as evangelistic targets. And he quotes how many unsaved people that he has befriended giving their opinions about Christ and the church. And he says, I don't set out to proselytize them. I just simply meet them to befriend them, enjoy their company, ask their opinions, and I see them as friends, not evangelistic targets. 
He thinks Christians have done more harm than good by witnessing to unbelievers using traditional methods of confronting them with their sin and the need for Christ. And he says that instead of street witnessing, we should be developing relationships in which we can dialogue and build trust with people. Now, I think we would agree that we as believers should be friendly, don't you think? Yeah, we should be friendly. We should probably be some of the most friendly people on this earth. And uh, we should be friendly to the unsaved. And we should be ready to befriend them. But this friendship must be done very carefully in the context of holiness. We don't compromise the holiness of God just to be a friend with the world. It's far better to invite sinners to spend time with us than to spend time with them on their turf, that is in the bars and the rock concerts and such, And there will always be the objective of reaching the unsaved for Christ, not just being their friend. You see, we do have an agenda because we are commanded by our master to preach the gospel to every person. I'm sure your Sunday school lesson for the adults was all about that this morning, right? And your memory verse for this week, Mark 16, 15, uh, uh, gives us that command. That was the agenda that Jesus gave us. For a believer, the most important way to be a friend to the unsaved is to confront them with the gospel and assuming that hell is real and that salvation is the only, is only through faith in Christ. There's nothing friendlier, nothing more compassionate than this. In his book, Peril of Islam, Gene Gerganus, who was a missionary to the Muslims for 17 years, he gives a proper biblical philosophy of befriending unbelievers in the context of evangelism. And the first of his nine suggestions for winning Muslims to Christ is the following. If we're going to evangelize Muslims, the first thing we have to do is to cultivate friendship. Saying, hello, how are you, is not enough. We need to come alongside them and get to know him, know his problems, know his frustrations, his ambitions, and his fears. And then he goes on saying we should befriend the unsaved, but he's not saying that what the emerging church is saying. Gerganus is saying the objective is not merely to befriend the unsaved, but to win them to Christ. And that's what we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was a friend of sinners above all friends, and he spent time with them, but he never sinned in any way with them. Jesus was not a party animal. And he definitely had the objective of saving those he befriended. He said, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus did not come to this earth just to make friends and help people in some kind of vague sense. But Christ preached very plainly to people. He was not afraid of offending them with the direct truth. He demanded repentance. And he warned often of hell at least 14 different times in the Gospels. Christ's preaching was so plain and so uncompromising that most of his own followers eventually would turn away from him because they were offended with his words. God has made us ambassadors for Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
And the believer's chief job in this present world is to urge, to beg, to plead with sinners to be reconciled to Christ. This is not a peripheral part of our purpose in this present world. It's the heart of it. And also our ministry to the unsaved must have a great sense of urgency about it. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. It warns against banking on tomorrow. It says the night is far spent and the day is at hand. It's evangelist D.L. Moody that had it right when he said, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat. And he said to me, Moody, save all you can. And the best way to share the gospel with your neighbors is to befriend them and tell them about Jesus. And that's the message of our text this morning in John chapter 1 and verses 35 through 51. Because Jesus is the Savior that everyone needs, friends bring friends to him. And John the Baptist points to two disciples, Andrew and probably John, to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And they follow Jesus, and Andrew finds his brother Simon Peter and brings him to Jesus. And then Jesus finds Philip and says to him, follow me. And Philip quickly finds Nathanael and tells him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And all Nathanael, although Nathanael was skeptical, Philip simply replies, come and see. Come and see. And so Nathanael met Jesus. And all of these men's lives were drastically changed because they met the Lord. So let's look this morning, first of all, at Jesus as the only Savior that everyone needs. The Gospel of John is all about who Jesus is. And the very first chapter, we've been looking at this, and we've already seen kind of uh, as a running start that uh, uh, we've seen that he is the eternal word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. Jesus was life in him, and that life was light of man, verse 4. He was a true life that lightens every man, verse 9. He gives all that believe in him the right to become children of God, that's verse 12. Uh, The word uh, also became flesh and dwelt among us, glorious as the only begotten and unique Son of the Father, verse 14. Also in verse 14, we saw that he's full of grace and truth, and that he's greater than John the Baptist who testified him in John 15. Uh, we also saw he's greater than Moses and the law in verse 17. Uh, he's on, the only begotten God who explains the Father to us in verse 18. He's the Lord in verse 23. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in verse 29. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit in verse 33. And he is the Son of God or the Chosen One of God in verse 34. And now as we continue on, verse 35, our text repeats some of these for emphasis, bringing out no less than 12 truths about Jesus as John shows us five men who meet Jesus and follow him. And remember, John's overall purpose for writing, you you find that back in chapter 20 and verse 31, that he ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now, let's look at those things as some, again, are repeats, but they, uh, they're important here. They're important enough for God to repeat them, and it's important enough for me to repeat them, too. But notice, first of all, 12 truths about who Jesus is. And the first one we find here is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. 
Verse 35 and 30 through 37. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. John has mentioned, he's going to continue to mention a sequence of days. And some have just suggested that John 1.1 begins the same way as Genesis 1.1 in the beginning, and that John is really outlining a new creation that centers in Jesus Christ. It has also been pointed out that the sequence of days in John 19 through uh, uh, verses chapter 2, verse 1, parallels to some degree the last week of Jesus' life uh, that we fought, we're going to find in John chapter 12. If the Lord doesn't come before we get there, we'll get to that. But uh, at the at very least, it gives us an eyewitness report from the one who remembered this life-changing week when he and some others who eventually became Jesus' apostles would meet the Savior. Now, last time we looked in detail about John's proclamation in verse 29, which said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we saw there that it focuses on Jesus as the supreme and final sacrifice for sinners that all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed toward. Whether the two disciples, Andrew and John, were not present the day before when John made that proclamation, or whether it just uh, took the second time on the second day for it to sink in, I'm not sure. But they knew that they were sinners, and they needed Jesus as their lamb. So they followed Jesus. So Jesus is the lamb of God. Secondly, Jesus is the teacher. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? And then verse, uh, uh, I believe it's 49, verse 49. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art King of Israel. John translates the term for his Greek readers. He translates the term Rabbi. That was an honorary title that students would use to address their teachers. And when the Pharisee Nicodemus addressed Jesus, what did he call him? He called him master or rabbi. Of course, Jesus is the greatest teacher of all time. Uh, he wasn't just teacher of the year award. Uh, he's a teacher of eternity. And we should all be students of his teachings and his example. Jesus is the teacher. Thirdly, Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 41, he first findeth his own, his brother Simon and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Again, John translates the term Messiah. It's used only here. And then in chapter four, in verse 25 in the New Testament, and the word Messiah means anointed one in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it means anointed one and is Christ is the name for the Messiah. In old, the Old Testament, anointed one is used for the king of Israel, the high priest, and the patriarchs. But even Daniel refers to the Messiah, the prince, in his prophecy of the 70 weeks. It's a title for uh, the one prophesied in the Old Testament who would be supremely God's appointed prophet, priest, and king. So we find here that Jesus is the Messiah. Fourthly, he is authoritative. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, 
which is by interpretation a stone. Andrew found his own brother Simon, brought him to Jesus, and uh, uh, John again translates for his Greek readers. He comes up with an Aramaic word for rock. Peter is the Greek work word for rock. But John's focus here is not so much on the meaning of the name, but rather on Jesus' authority over people and his power to change them into what he wants them to be so that he can use them for his sovereign purpose. You know, it would be rather unnerving to meet a man only to have the first words coming out of his mouth as a declaration that he was changing your name. Uh, Your name is what? Oh, I'm going to call you this. You know, uh, our name is our identity. Now, sometimes I kid children. I do this when I meet children sometimes for the first time, and I don't know their name, and so I call them, hello, hello, George, hello, Bill, uh, hello, Penelope, hello, Matilda, you know, and uh, uh, they say, that's not my name. Eventually, I get their name, and they enjoy my little game with them, but uh, uh, Jesus didn't ask Simon if it was okay if he changed his name. He didn't suggest it as a possibility. Hey, how about calling yourself this from now on, you know? Think about it. No, he didn't do that. He says, it'll grow on you. (laughs) No. Rather, Jesus declares authoritatively, Thou art Simon, thou shalt be called Cephas, meaning Peter. Got it? As a sovereign Lord, he has that kind of authority over us. Jesus is authoritative. We also find here that Jesus is he whom the Old Testament speaks. Verse 45, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. The law and the prophets in a common turn refer to all the Old Testament. Only over 300 prophecies plus many types in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. Is the Old Testament important? Some people say no. I say it is. I say it's very important. Is it written to us? Not necessarily, but there are things that we can can learn from it. It certainly talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are prophecies, over 300 of them. Jesus is of as he whom the Old Testament speaks. And then Jesus is of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 45 again, we have found him, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now John often uses irony, and this is probably one of those times when he does. Actually, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he was not the biological son of Joseph. He grew up in Nazareth and was as supposed the son of Joseph, Luke tells us. It was commonly rumored that Jesus was born of fornication. Find that uh, talked about in John 8. But Philip's description of Jesus brings out his humanity. He was a man. He came from a small town in Galilee. He was raised by a man by the name of Joseph, who was married to Mary. And although Philip erroneously thought that Jesus was a native of, of Nazareth and the son of Joseph, he, he led Nathanael to the son of God who was born in Bethlehem. And sometimes God overrules our inaccurate witness to bring people to the truth about Jesus. And I'm thankful for that because uh, many times we're not as accurate as we'd like to be. 
But then notice also that Jesus is omniscient. We see this in verse 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite, and indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Behold, an Israelite, indeed in whom is there is in whom is no guile. Nathanael was quite startled that Jesus seemed to know him even before they met. But then Jesus adds, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Apparently Nathanael had been sitting under a fig tree, probably meditating on the story in Genesis 28 about Jacob's ladder. Uh, We kind of get that idea from verse 51. We'll talk a little bit about that more later. But Jesus' supernatural knowledge of Nathanael's character and his private activity was enough for him to declare in verse 49, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. You know, Jesus has a way of unmasking us and looking into our souls to reveal what we really are. He later reveals that he knew that what Thomas had said privately to the other disciples about touching Jesus' wounds. We find that in chapter 20. But Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us in verse 12 and 13, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. For the word of God is quick and powerful. Well, what did we learn in John chapter 1, first 1 and some of the first verses there? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. So Jesus is equated with the word of God. Jesus, the word, knows all about you. Every one of you this morning, every one of us, Jesus knows all about us. It's pointless to try to hide things from him. We say, well, nobody's watching, so I'm going to do this. Somebody's watching. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's watching us all the time. He knows everything about us. The good news is that he loves us in spite of all knowing all about us. You know, uh, sometimes we get to know people and say, I didn't know that about you. Well, if I'd known that about you, I would have never been your friend or something like that. You know, Jesus knows all about us and he's still our friend. He still wants to be your savior. He wants to change you for the good. Jesus is omniscient. And then we notice that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 49, Nathanael answered unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. That's a messianic title. In the Old Testament, Israel is God's Son. And and in here in the book of John, Jesus presented as the true Israel. But the Son of God also refers to God's promises to David uh, uh, that one of his sons would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Uh, I think Nathaniel was probably referring to the messianic designation of the Son of God. But as John's gospel will show us, the title also describes Jesus as the eternal Son of God. It's an intimate relationship with the Father as the second person of the Trinity. And so Nathaniel spoke better than he knew. 
Jesus is the Son of God. And then Jesus is the King of Israel. Again, verse 49, uh, that uh, is there. He said, not only thou art the Son of God, but thou art the King of Israel. Another messianic term related to the Davidic covenant. And at this point, Nathaniel and the others who meet Jesus and proclaim him to be the Messiah, the King, they kind of have a political understanding of that term. You know, they think, well, he's going to free Israel from Roman rule. He's going to usher in the new Davidic age of peace and prosperity. And they still need to learn that his kingdom was not of this world. But at least at this point, they're acknowledging Jesus as the king of Israel. Nathaniel is acknowledging him to be his own king, and so should we. And then we find that he's the connection between heaven and earth. Jesus tells Nathanael there in verse 51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of God. Now in verse 50, I want you to notice there, Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. Now notice verse 51. See if you find the change there. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven and open, and the angels of God descending and de- ascending and descending on the Son of God. Notice in verse 51, the pronouns are singular. In verse 50, or 50, The pronouns are singular. In verse 51, they are plural. And by the way, this is the importance of the these and the thous in our King James Bibles. Some people say, well, I don't like all those these and thous in the King James. I don't like that Bible. I like it because of the these and the thous, because the, T-H, means singular. You, ye, means plural. And the King James Bible makes that distinction. It helps us to better understand what is being said and to whom it's being said. In verse 51, Jesus addresses his promise to the five disciples. This is the first time Jesus is going to use a double affirmation. Verily, verily. That's a word. Verily means surely, or surely, surely. Some would put it this way, truly, truly. It occurs only in the book of John here, the Gospel of John, 25 times. And it points to a significant truth to follow. When he says, verily, verily, there's going to be something very, very important after that. As I said, Nathaniel had probably been meditating on Jacob's dream about the ladder between heaven and earth with the angels ascending and descending upon it. And there they ascend and descend, but here they ascend and descend on Jesus. Why Jesus? Well, remember what it says in John 14, verse 6? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's not a way, he's the only way. 
The only link between heaven and earth. And by seeing the heavens open, Jesus is promising the disciples that they will have greater visions of divine truth. And we can only know the Father through believing in Jesus, the Son. He is the connection between heaven and earth. Not Muhammad, not the Pope, not anyone else, none other religious leader of this world, not Buddha. Jesus is the only way. He is the connection between heaven and earth. And then he's the dwelling place of God with us. Now this is also comes from this imagery of verse 51 relating to Jacob's dream. After his dream, Jacob declared in Genesis, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And then he added there in that uh Passage, this is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he named the place Bethel, house of God, meaning house of God. Jesus is the new dwelling place of God with man. We are to abide in him. Now we find that later in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. And that's a truth that we'll get to when we get to John 15. But then Jesus is also the coming Son of Man. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. He does it 12 times in John. And the term comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where Daniel sees one like uh, the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, who gives to him an everlasting kingdom. And since Jesus refers to these verses in, at his trial, Later on, to testify to the high priest that he's coming again in power and glory, there may be that allusion here in John 1.51 to his second coming. I think there are four reasons that Jesus adopted this term for himself. Number one, it was rare term but without nationalistic associations. People would not view him as a political messiah. Uh, Secondly, it had overtones of divinity because of its connection with Daniel. Thirdly, he'd adopted it because it implies the redeemed people of God. And then fourthly, it had undertones of humanity. He took upon him our weakness. It was a a way of alluding to and yet veiling his messiahship. He was, this concept of the messiah differed markedly from that which was commonly held at that time. And so the Gospel of John, the term is also always associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or with salvation he came to bring. Now all of these glorious piled up terms, we have 12 of them. They're piled on one to- on top of another. They describe Jesus. He's the only Savior that everyone needs. There's much more to say about these five men. I think uh, we'll probably do that next uh, next time, but let's leave it at that at this point. And let's finish up with, because of Jesus, who Jesus is, friends bring friends to him. Because of who Jesus is, friends bring friends to him. I think one of the striking things in the gospel accounts of how people met Jesus as Savior is the variety of circumstances, the variety of gospel presentations. Uh, The gospel message is always the same, but there's no uniform, memorized gospel presentation. Now, I don't think it's wrong to have a presentation you memorize, perhaps. 
like the Romans road. You might have that down. You have all those verses. And I think uh, though we need to be careful to tailor our presentation to each person that we meet. But notice the different ways these men came to Jesus. The first two, Andrew and presumably John, were disciples of John the Baptist. They heard him declare Jesus to be the Lamb of God, and they followed Jesus. Jesus means that they, or John means that they followed Jesus literally. They walked right after him. But he probably, it also means they began to follow Jesus as his disciples. Jesus' opening words to Philip were what? Follow me. There's no such thing as truly believe in Jesus as your Savior and not following him. Following him in obedience. John the Baptist was content to let the disciples go after Jesus. You see, the goal of every disciple maker is that the disciples don't follow him, but they follow Jesus. When I lead someone to the Lord, I want them to be led to the Lord. And if I am going to disciple that person and help them to grow in the Lord, I don't want them to be my disciple. I want them to be Jesus' disciple. There's no indication that these men followed Jesus the first time when John declared him to be the son of of the Lamb of God. But the second time, I think the message really hits home. Studies have shown that on the average, it takes seven times for a person to hear the gospel before they believe. So keep telling people about Jesus. Don't say, well, I told them once, they ought to to believe now, right? No, you keep telling them. And you keep telling them. As long as they'll let you. Even if they've heard it before. You may or may not see that person ever respond, but the seed of the gospel is planted and will eventually sprout. Notice also that it is by exalting Christ that people are drawn to him. John proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God. It caught the attention of Andrew and John who felt the need for a Savior from their sins. Andrew told Peter and they found uh, th- that they found the Messiah, which intrigued Peter enough to go see for himself. Philip extolled Jesus to Nathaniel as the one about whom Moses and the prophets had written about. And although Nathaniel was skeptical at first, Philip's gentle invitation, come and see, drew Nathaniel to the Savior. Jesus called Philip directly and with authority. He said, follow me. And we have no idea how much Philip knew about Jesus before. But something about Jesus' manner and his command drew Philip to him. Now you never know how God is going to use your witness. We never know. Andrew's witness brought Peter to Christ. Andrew never preached to large crowds. He never became a great evangelist or a great preacher. Now as far as the the, uh, scriptures record, we don't know that. But his one-on-one witness to Peter, led thousands to come to Christ. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church at that time. Peter became the leader of the twelve, and Andrew, apparently content to let him take that role. Every time we encounter Andrew in John's Gospel, he's bringing someone to Jesus. He's bringing someone to Jesus. 
Now that's not a bad legacy to have. I think uh, few people would know the name Edward Kimball. You may or may not have ever heard that name before. Or you might not recognize it if you heard it. But he was the Sunday school teacher who led one of his pupils, D.L. Moody, to Christ. Kimball was a timid, soft-spoken man. He decided to talk with Moody, who was about 19 years old. He was a Moody was a shoe salesman at that time. And so Kimball decided to talk to him about his soul. Moody was untaught. He was ignorant about the Bible at this point. And when Kimball got near the store where Moody worked, he almost chickened out. But he went in and he stumbled over his words and said later he could, have ne- he could never remember exactly what he said. He just said something about Christ and his love. And he admitted that he was weak, but Moody gave his heart to Christ right there and then. And later God would use D.L. Moody mightily to lead thousands to Christ in America and in England. Won't we at least desire to be an Edward Kimball and lead someone to Christ? The point is, Jesus didn't launch his kingdom through a mass mailing or preaching to large crowds in an evangelistic campaign. There was no corporate headquarters for the organization. There was no gospel blimp. He began quietly with two of John the Baptist's disciples. Andrew told his brother. And probably John also later told his brother James and Philip told Nathaniel. And all of them recognized in Jesus the Savior that they needed. They all got excited about who Jesus was. And with that excitement, it spilled over in telling their relatives and their friends. You know, that's how the Lord wants the good news to spread with us. If you're excited about Jesus, then tell your family, tell your friends about him. Make a list, maybe of 8 to 15 people with whom you have regular contact who don't know the Lord. Begin to pray for them. Begin to pray to God for opportunities to talk to them about their need for Christ. Because someone is ready to trust Christ. We know this, everyone is a sinner, alienated from God, because Jesus is the only Savior who bridges the gap gap between us and God. Friends will want to bring friends to him. And I trust that's your desire this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer.